Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Using technology to track COVID-19 in the body. This gives further evidence that long COVID is really impacting many individuals who come down with COVID. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. What's driving a rise in fentanyl use? We're sort of catching up in San Diego now that it's easier for it to be coming here. And now I think we're just seeing a continuing legacy of that that's been exacerbated by the pandemic. The University of California is taking in more students. And have you ever wanted to fight zombies? We'll take you to a new virtual reality gaming facility. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Scripps uses activity trackers to spot COVID symptoms and side effects and why deadly fentanyl is becoming a popular drug. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. This is KPBS Midday Edition. It's Wednesday, July 7th. Can your smartwatch or Fitbit detect COVID-19 before symptoms appear? And can those devices tell you how your body is recovering? Emerging data from an ongoing study with Scripps Research Translational Institute says it's quite possible. Scientists are using activity trackers to look at the physiological and behavioral changes that happen just before symptoms appear and extend months after the infection is gone. Jennifer Radin is an epidemiologist with the Digital Medicine Division at Scripps, and she is leading what's called the DETECT study. Dr. Radin, welcome. Thank you for having me. You are finding common technology like smartwatches to be very helpful in understanding how a COVID-19 infection impacts the body. What have you discovered from people who are wearing these activity trackers? Yeah, so activity trackers can really give us a better view into each individual's unique um, normal resting heart rate, activity, and sleep patterns when they're healthy. And so when someone comes down with a viral infection, such as COVID, we can identify um, changes compared to each user's unique normal to better understand how they are responding to an infection. In our current study that just came out, we um, looked at people's recovery patterns. um, So how long it took them to go back to their baselines for resting heart rate, activity, and sleep. 
And what we found was that on average, it took um, participants who came down with COVID about two to three months to return to their baseline resting heart rate. Hmm. And how do these new findings compare to the current understanding of the impacts of COVID on the body? Yeah, so this is the first time that we've really been able to collect continuous um, longitudinal objective data from participants to be able to understand what their healthy normal was prior to infection and then really follow them continuously over time to really see how their body responded to the infection and how um, long it is taking to recover. And so this gives further evidence that long COVID is um, really impacting many individuals who come down with COVID. The DETECT study previously found that, that these devices may also be able to tell if there's an infection before symptoms show up. How so? Yeah, so um, when people come down with a viral illness, they may start to see a subtle small change in their resting heart rate, um, even before fever onset or different symptom onset. And so sensors may actually give us an early warning that something is impacting someone's health and that maybe an individual needs to stay at home or be more aware of, of their health and any symptoms that they may develop in the next few days. And so the study is ongoing and will look at the impact of vaccines. What are you hoping to find out there? So there um, we're hoping to better understand the physiological and behavioral response to vaccines as well um, to compare Pfizer versus Moderna and also compare users who had um, uh, COVID infection prior to getting their vaccines, how that may impact their um, physiological response to receiving the vaccine. Uh, We also want to look at different age groups and different gender, um, look at gender as well to see if there's any differences there in response. And ultimately, with that study, we um, hope to, in the future, create uh, collect biomarkers um, so we can compare the physiological response to perhaps immune response. So we think that this can be maybe in the future a way to understand whether an individual has mounted a uh, immune response to with the vaccine. And what other ways might the information in this study be useful? Yeah, so we are currently partnering with the Rockefeller Foundation to increase enrollment um, specifically in the San Diego County. And our goal is to um, create an early warning system where we can identify hotspots of viral illness infection in different communities faster than traditional um, viral illness detection. So um, typically um, surveillance for viral illnesses um, relies on relies on people seeking care from their healthcare provider and their healthcare provider then reporting the number of um, people they see each week that meet a certain case definition, as well as those who um, receive testing for COVID and flu. And that system, the traditional system is actually pretty delayed. It takes about one to three weeks before those data are collected and reported. And so we're hoping that with our wearable data that we can provide an earlier warning and an earlier detection of um, local outbreaks that may occur from new strains of COVID um, or other viral infections such as flu epidemics. And Dr. Raiden, how can people sign up for this study? Yeah, they can go to our research app, which is called My Data Helps. Or you can go to our website, um, detectstudy.org, and that will direct you to our research app. And participants um, can download our app, and then they go through an e-consent process where they learn about our study. 
And then after that, they can share um, their device data. So we are device agnostic. We can pull in any wearable device that connects to Apple HealthKit or Google Fit. And then participants can share with us um, any symptoms they may develop, vaccination status, any um, COVID tests or flu tests they may receive. And um, this allows us to compare both the sensor data to what participants are experiencing. I've been speaking with Jennifer Radin, an epidemiologist with the Digital Medicine Division at Scripps Research Translational Institute, who is leading the DETECT study. Dr. Radin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. After more than a year of pandemic lockdowns and anxieties, signs are emerging that the stress has taken a toll on mental health and personal behaviors. One of the worst examples of that is the increase in San Diego County of drug overdose deaths from fentanyl abuse. County statistics show that deaths from the synthetic opioid more than doubled in the past two years, while seizures of the drug along the San Diego-Mexico border continue to rise. County health officials project the number of deaths due to fentanyl overdose this year will reach a staggering 700 people. Joining me to explain more about this drug and its lethal potential is Dr. Carla Marienfeld, a board-certified addiction psychiatrist at UC San Diego who specializes in the treatment of substance abuse. Dr. Marienfeld, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, how is fentanyl related to heroin and other opioid drugs? Opioids are any class of medicines that can act on the opioid receptor in the brain. And some of them are derived from natural sources like the poppy plant. So things like morphine and heroin, and to some extent, codeine. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. So its structure is different, but it still acts on the same receptor in the brain. The difference with fentanyl versus some of the naturally derived opioids is that it's much more potent. So you just need a very, very small amount to achieve a high or a pleasurable effect. And you just need a tiny, tiny bit more to actually overdose or have a very negative effect. Is it cheaper than, say, heroin? It's cheaper in the sense that you need much less to have a similar effect. So in many ways, it ends up being a cheaper product to have a more effective, efficient high, but with greater risks. And is the reason that there are so many overdoses is because people are unfamiliar in how to use this as opposed to heroin? I think that there's greater public knowledge about the risks of fentanyl, but there's also a mix of people who are using it. So for some people in the community, there is a preference for fentanyl because it is potent and it's a preferable high. They end up using it without really knowing or recognizing that it's in the supply of heroin or other opioids that they might be obtaining, or increasingly where we're seeing it is in the supply of methamphetamine that people are using. But for some, they're not necessarily aware. Does fentanyl have any legitimate use? It's been around for a long time as a very helpful analgesic for patients with cancer pain or other types of chronic pain. It wasn't until about 2013 that somebody realized the cheaper, more potent high that you could get with fentanyl, and it started coming into our illicit drug supply. And that's where we really saw this dramatic rise in opioid overdoses that had been steadily increasing since the early 2000s with oxycodone and with heroin, but just dramatic 
dramatically increased with the introduction of fentanyl to the illicit supply in 2013. What kinds of challenges does fentanyl addiction present when treating someone for substance abuse? It actually makes things a lot more complicated. Unlike many other addictions, we actually have really good medications to help people with opioid use disorders. With opioids, we have methadone, we have buprenorphine, and we have once-monthly injectable naltrexone, and these are all three medications that have dramatic benefits to reducing opioid cravings, reducing opioid overdoses, reducing mortality, improving life functioning, etc. So the challenge with fentanyl is that it's much harder to get patients started on these medications. Doctor, what are you finding out about the pandemic's effect on opioid addiction? We've had signals since early on in the pandemic of worsening rates of substance use across all substances, particularly alcohol has made a lot of press, but we've seen it with opioid use disorder as well. The pandemic has done many things. It's interrupted drug supplies, so people are more likely to have disruptions in their use, which can lead to some desperate behaviors or trying to obtain things that are more risky, for example. In addition, with all of the stressors that everyone in our society is facing, isolation, mental health, et cetera, those things are already things that exacerbate substance use disorders and were just intensified and increased during the pandemic. As you mentioned, uh, fentanyl is new in terms of opioids. And we know about heroin, we know about Oxycontin, but fentanyl is basically the new drug on our streets. Are we still catching up in terms of how we go about addressing this problem in our community? So fentanyl is newer to San Diego because we have some interesting dynamics in San Diego where methamphetamine has been such a prevalent substance of misuse and there's been a lot of access to that. Because fentanyl is so potent, you need just a small amount of it. So it's actually easier to distribute and smuggle into the country as opposed to the quantities you would need for heroin. And so that's changed what's available in San Diego. So fentanyl was really a big problem in the United States starting in the early 2010s, particularly around 2013. But we're sort of catching up in San Diego now that it's easier for it to be coming here. And we are seeing this change in what people are using in our community. And now I think we're just seeing a continuing legacy of that that's been exacerbated by the pandemic. I've been speaking with Dr. Carla Marienfeld, a board-certified addiction psychiatrist at UCSD. And Dr. Marienfeld, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. UC schools should accept more California students. 
That's the cry from critics who've watched the number of out-of-state and international students climb at state universities. In this year's budget, California legislators included funding language that orders UC San Diego, UCLA, and UC Berkeley to cut their out-of-state undergraduate admissions by about 4%. Estimates are that will free up a total of 4,500 extra California admissions. And the budget also sets a target of expanding UC admissions in the next two years by more than 6,000 students, and all of them must come from California. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Robbins. And Gary, welcome. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. How much have out-of-state and international admissions increased at UC San Diego? It's been explosive. Um, Over the past 10 years, the number of international students, for example, has gone from about 2,000 way up to 8,000. The number of California residents has increased by about 5,000, excuse me, 500 students up to approximately 2,000. So a lot of the growth of the university has been from people who are from outside the state of California. And is the increase in those students all about the extra tuition that they bring to the school? It is mostly about that, but not entirely. So this is a dilemma with taxpayers. Taxpayers are saying that they want more of their kids allowed into the UC, the the people that qualify. But at the same time, over the past 20 years, taxpayers have also been saying, well, we really don't want you to increase the uh, funding for the UC system. That pressured the UC system, particularly some of the larger campuses, into going elsewhere, like out of state and internationally, uh, to bring in students who pay more than uh, two and a half times in tuition. So it's partly that. They're also trying to create universities here that have a more global outlook, particularly in San Diego, which is a Pacific Rim uh, city and a city on the border. But it is, this mostly has to do with money. And how does this new state budget compensate the UCs for cutting out-of-state admissions? So it appears that the state assumes that it's going to cost about $184,000 over the next four years for these three campuses to reduce the number of undergraduates from other places and replace them with Californians. They haven't appropriated all of that money, but the legislature is on track to do that. So they're essentially buying out the out-of-state and international students. Why exactly is there criticism about the number of -of out-of-state UC admissions, and where is that criticism coming from? A lot of the criticism comes from prospective students and from their parents. Um, They rightfully point to the fact that uh, their children would qualify for entrance into the UC system under the current standards. And California, as you know, has been growing, and the number of uh, high school graduates who qualify for the UC has been improving. So there's quite a pipeline of um, California-based students who want to get into the UC. And many of those students want to get into particular schools like La Jolla, UCLA, and Berkeley. They're considered to be the most prestigious. And um, a school like San Diego has been growing so fast, there's just a lot of uh, dynamic energy there, and people are seeing it as a a place that is really a fun and interesting place to be. And apparently California politicians are feeling that pressure from parents. They're really getting it. I talked to um, Phil Ting, and he was just uh, directly echoing the the sentiments of parents saying, this is wrong, this is fundamentally wrong, that, um, you know, these parents are taxpayers, and yet many of their kids aren't able to get into the UC because students are being given those slots from other places. Now, Chancellor Kozla at UC San Diego says that there's never been a California student who didn't get in rightfully during his term at the expense of, um, of an out-of-state student and uh, an international student. 
Some parents are not buying that argument, but that is the one that the chancellor makes. What was Chancellor Kosler's overall reaction to this cut in out-of-state students? Very practical. I've known him for a long time now, so the conversation was very down to earth. He says, we will do this. We will do it over the five-year period. Um, and he is hopeful that the university system will get the money, the replacement money, that the legislature says it will give. If it doesn't get that money, they could be in a world of hurt. And you referenced something else, Maureen, that could be really uh, difficult. Uh, as part of the budget language, they said, in addition to do all these things, we want the UC system to add 6,200 students, uh, we're talking about freshmen now, undergraduate freshmen, next fall. Well, that's a very, very large increase in students in a one-year period. And if they go ahead with those 6,200 students, well, a lot of them will end up at La Jolla because it has more room to, exp to expand. But it's also difficult because UC San Diego has been growing so fast that it's kind of tripping on its growth right now. Um, it has 40,000 students. It ex is it expecting a very large record enrollment this fall, fall 21. And then if you go ahead and expand the system further next year, that just makes it more difficult for UC San Diego to keep up with the pace. The chancellor is saying that the infrastructure is not keeping up with the number of students. So they're really choking on um, building problems and uh, growth problems right now. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Robbins. Gary, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. San Diego County is spending more than a million dollars to set up an Office of Environmental and Climate Justice. Supervisor Nora Vargas asked to create the office, and all her fellow board members agreed. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson sat down with Vargas and recently discussed the initiative. For me, it was really important to create an Office of Environmental and Climate Justice that really was going to ensure that you had folks that were going to be looking every day. Their job is to wake up and look at um, the world from an environmental and climate justice lens, which means looking at environmental race, racism, right, in our communities, which means looking at, you know, the, tox the toxins um, in, in our region, uh, you know, the contamination, and, and it, it was bigger, you know, it was part of my bigger environmental package, but for me it was really important that we had an office that, that really is going to have people who are dedicated to looking at the world from that lens. Help me define environmental justice as you perceive it. We're really proud of being a binational community, but if you think about uh, the uh, emissions from the long hours uh, of folks waiting at the border, um, all of these issues are impacting a community that, because of their zip code, have been uh, you know, greatly, I think, hurt by uh, these policies that didn't really take them into consideration. Can you give me an example of how this county office might impact a piece of legislation that the supervisors would consider? What I keep saying to folks is for a long time, it's the nonprofit organizations, environmental justice organizations that have been doing the work that government should have been doing from the beginning. And so what we are doing now is government is taking that responsibility and ensuring that folks have the information that they need and that we are um, actually going to be able to get their input as we're making um, you know, the policies moving forward. Why do you think the supervisors are ready to make this change? I came here to do a job on behalf of the community and that's, and that's what we're doing. And, and so 
this is a new board of supervisors. We have the will and, and uh, to really make a difference. And we have a short amount of time to do it. And so we have no time to waste. Community members have been raising these issues, but why is it now that this is sort of kind of coalescing in organizations that have the ability to make change? I mean, I think it goes back to decades of organizing in our communities, right? I mean, I started this work 25 years ago, and we have all um, worked side by side in terms of doing the, the equity-minded work, right? And whether it's healthcare, the environment, economic justice issues, uh, transportation, housing, we know that they're all integrated. And I think, if anything, the last administration demonstrated how important making decisions based on science uh, is for our communities, right? I think about how COVID, I think, has, you know, when we talk about the impact of COVID, particularly in communities of color, the Latino community, um, the communities across the county of San Diego, zip, again, it was the issue of, of where you lived that made a difference on whether or not you were going to have access um, to vaccines or access to to testing and we shifted that around in a really short amount of time because we looked at the data and we looked at, uh, at the health equity index and we decided that that's what we were going to prioritize because the county of San Diego is the safety net for so many folks that for many reasons haven't have had access you know for years and so for me I think it's it really is um, a new day in the county of San Diego and I think for what you're seeing in government, it's a real true partnership between elected officials and um, community organizations and advocates. And, and I do believe that the will of county staff is there to be able to make a difference. That was Supervisor Nora Vargas speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. As the state braces for another summer of record heat and extreme weather, the need for long-term climate resilience is becoming more and more apparent. A recent report put out by the American Planning Association and the Scripps Institution of Oceanography underscores the need here in San Diego. In it, the report underlines the potential threat that the region may face due to climate change and lays out a framework for how San Diego might address future climate resiliency challenges. Joining me with more is Carrie Lowe of the American Planning Association and Julie Kolansky, a climate scientist at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the co-lead author on the report. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, Julie, can you tell us what are some of the main climate challenges facing San Diego that are laid out in the report? Some of the main climate challenges that we have and that, you know, we'll start to experience this summer are the extreme heat and heat waves. Also, what we and what we're experiencing right now is extreme drought. Along with that extreme drought, we also have the flip side of that and our most extreme rainfall events and storms will actually are projected to become larger. And then in addition to that, what we're seeing is a long-term sea level rise, which will be punctuated by sea levels of extremes that can also cause flooding and erosion along our shores. Julie, how will these challenges impact everything from infrastructure to public health and safety here in San Diego? When taken combined, as you mentioned, these extremes have will impact public health and also the, especially with the flooding and erosion can impact our infrastructure 
Uh, and the report also points out that the co-occurrence of these extreme events, which are also sometimes called compounding events, extreme events, can cause, uh, can cause even greater stressors on public health and infrastructure. And Carrie, from your perspective, what are your thoughts on this? Well, we recognize how vulnerable the San Diego region is to climate change impacts, and we're happy that there's a lot of planning going on to address that. But our concern is that with all the plans that are being prepared at the state level, the regional level, the local city level, that there needs to be much greater coordination among all of that planning. Different agencies have different focuses. Some are more comprehensive than others. Uh, a, a big theme of our report is that, uh, first of all, the different levels of government need to coordinate with one another better. And then within our region, the different agencies, the regional ones uh, like the County Water Authority or Sandag, as well as the individual cities and other local agencies, all need to be talking to one another more, uh, coordinating their activities better, uh, and sharing information. And Carrie, following up on that, a key note from the report is that uh, while there are many existing efforts uh, to address climate change within the region, you know, it's critical to coordinate these efforts together to maximize their effectiveness. Has that kind of coordination been a challenge in the past? Yes, it has been a challenge. Uh, you know, within our region, we have, of course, the county government, and then we have all the individual cities each of which have their own general plans, their own climate action plans, uh, and various other kinds of plans that relate in one way or another to climate change. So they do have venues in which they can uh, collaborate, uh, like SANDAG, the San Diego Association of Governments. There also are agencies that span all of them, like the County Water Authority. And yet, it remains a challenge, and we hope that our report will be something of an impetus to all these local government agencies that, to recognize the, the value uh, for all of them in better collaboration. And also, Carrie, since the city of San Diego already has a climate action plan that was updated last year, how does this report build on what the city is already doing to address the effects of climate change? The... Uh, shortcoming, if you will, of many of the climate action plans is that while they address reducing greenhouse gas emissions uh, in various ways, they don't do as good a job of addressing how to make their jurisdictions more resilient in the face of climate change. In other words, uh, on the assumption that we're going to have some amount of climate change impacts, how do we make our cities and the county and individual neighborhoods able to better withstand those impacts and bounce back from them? And that's really the, the notion of resilience. So what we're advocating is not that they do anything different than what they're doing, but that they do more things in addition, that is focus uh, equally on resilience and adaptation uh, as much as they are on uh, on greenhouse gas reduction. And Julie, the report also goes into how certain efforts will play a role in working toward environmental justice for communities uh, that have been historically oppressed, exploited, and neglected. Uh, can you tell us more about that? 
these communities that you refer to, which we for shorthand we call environmental justice or EJ communities, tend to be either low-income areas, um, communities of color, Indian reservations, uh, just some rural areas, uh, areas that are uh, for various reasons, more susceptible to climate change impacts. Uh, they may be um, uh, located in places that are more vulnerable. And more to the point, they have historically been deprived of financial and other resources. So they don't have, uh, for example, as much uh, tree cover for shade. They may be more subject to coastal flooding. And a whole host of, of ways in which they are often more uh, vulnerable to or subject to climate change impacts. So uh, another big thrust of our report is to uh, show how all of these plans and actions to address greater resilience should be looked at through a, a, what I'll call a lens of environmental justice so that those communities that have historically been deprived of resources uh, will get the resources they need to catch up and be better prepared uh, going forward. And Julie, is there anything else you'd like to add on the sort of climate challenges that San Diego has historically faced that this report takes into account and what measures need to be taken in the near future to prevent further damage? In terms of preventing future damage, I think a lot of this is, is thinking about incorporating what the, the possibilities that climate change presents in terms of extreme extreme events and the vulnerabilities to that. And so, as I mentioned before, this idea of looking at co-occurring or sequence of events that may happen back to back that add additional stressors I, is increasingly important because these are, I would say, some of the most extreme events. And so by planning for some of the, the most extreme, it prepares for the events that may not be quite as extreme. I've been speaking with Carrie Lowe of the American Planning Association and Julie Kolansky, a climate scientist at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the co-lead author of the report. Thank you both for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Sandbox VR opened shortly before the pandemic hit and just recently reopened. Located in the Mission Valley Shopping Center, the Virtual Reality, or VR gaming facility, allows groups of up to six players to fight zombies, alien bugs, or each other. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando went with some friends to check it out. Not all businesses love to hear their clients screaming. Uh, so the screaming is basically your customers, you know, enjoying themselves to their fullest. Welcome to Sandbox VR. So Sandbox is a fully immersive virtual reality experience. We offer five different experiences, Amber Sky, Deadwood, Cursed Davy Jones, Star Trek, and also our fight one, which is UFL. Our group opted for Deadwood Mansion. We dubbed ourselves Team Romero and geared up to battle zombies with the help of Sandbox manager, Jordan Ewing. This is room one. Each one of these rooms look exactly like this, maybe in somewhat of a different configuration. We do have the backpacks over here, and the backpacks is what powers the experiences. And then we have trackers. We have four trackers, two is for your legs, and two 
two for your arms. And then we also have the haptic vest. The haptic vest is what's gonna allow you to feel that in-game damage. So if your friend is shooting you, or if a villain is shooting you, or a zombie is like hitting you and in your face, that's what you're gonna feel. Go ahead and put on your Oculus and headphones, guys. It was a VR game. Uh, it was a horror experience where we got to shoot zombies and uh, rats, lots of rats. I screamed a lot. My throat even hurt. Blanco Osario killed more rats than zombies. So I was uh, the exterminator of the group because rats freaked me out and I, they were coming towards me and I was just like, no! Jose Aturiaga was also on Team Romero. It's crazy how you actually get into the horror feel and you actually get like freaked out about things that are coming at you. Viviana Grandal is an experienced gamer, but usually plays at home on a computer with a keyboard and mouse. This was my first like fully immersive VR experience where I got to play with other players and see other players. And that part was so much better than just an alone experience with VR. Just being aware of your surroundings and your teammates and being able to heal each other, that was hilarious. Yeah, we died a lot. I'm dead! But a touch on the shoulder can revive a player. Touch my shoulder! Touch my shoulder! This was Gavin Bowles first experience with virtual reality gaming. It was intense. It was very uh, immersive, very realistic, and uh, made my heart pound. <laughs> As a concept artist, Aturiega appreciated the game's design. The, the environment's so well done that you feel like you're in it. Totally immersive, the sounds, the feel. You get um, equipped with a haptic responsive vest, so when something's touching you or attacking you, you're feeling it, so it is completely immersive. <laughs> it's cool because you get, you know, a 360 view, so it's like you're really in that place. Oh, zombies in the back, upstairs. <laughs> I like the fact that the zombies came out from different places. You have to be like up at the top, oh behind you, you know, on your feet the whole time, like looking out from the sky. All the entrances and the stairs. Upstairs. Stairs, stairs, stairs. It's fun. Behind you, behind you, front door, front door. They give you guns, so you get to shoot at stuff. Main entrance, main entrance. I had two handguns, and I figured uh, I could have a little bit more blast radius if I had two hands to shoot with than just one. <laughs> it did start very slow, but once it gets going and they explain everything to you and you get everything all geared up, it's very fast-paced. <laughs> it starts off pretty like a pretty manageable level, and it quickly picks up pace. Uh, you start getting more enemies, different mechanics, so you kind of have to figure out what's going on around you and be aware of everything around you. So it it goes by pretty quickly. It escalates quickly. I think my my favorite part would probably be watching the video afterwards. That video was so funny because you're equipped with all of your gear and you're seeing things so you think you look pretty badass and then you watch yourself and you're just kind of flailing around. Jose Aturiaga, aka Bats, was the team's MVP. Yes, I was pleasantly surprised about that because I did die a few times. But uh, yeah, I guess that shotgun proved handy. <laughs> So kudos to Team Romero for fighting off most of the zombies. For KPBS News, this is Bub the Untouchable. I mean, Beth Accomando. Sandbox VR requires masks for non-vaccinated guests and sanitizes all gear between gaming sessions. With the return to live music in San Diego, many local bands will finally get to perform again for an audience on a stage this summer. Joining me is KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans to discuss some brand new music from some of San Diego's local bands, including a few shows. You might want to dust off your calendars as well as your headphones. <laughs> Welcome, Julia. 
Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Now, first up is Jelani Are, and we're all excited to kick off our KPBS Summer Music Series later this month with Jelani. Julia, tell us about this track you picked, Overexposed. This is from his forthcoming album, I've Got Some Living to Do, which will be out July 30th. And I personally am pretty much in full Jelani Arie hype mode right now. And so is the rest of the world. He's getting about 1.2 million monthly streams on Spotify. So he is Filipino African American and grew up in inland San Diego. It definitely brings a sensibility to his music of being kind of stifled by that suburban upbringing and a definite wisdom beyond his relative youth. But his music is really bright and refreshing, and I love the latest single, Overexposed. There's tons of really rich texture and layered vocals, and it just feels really original. It's chock full of honest, kind of questioning lyrics, like the repeated first line, why do I do the things I do? Why do I do the things I do? Dwindling down without a clue. Try to find the closure in a tomb Overexposed and so confused Why do I do the things I do? Dwindling down without a clue Try to find the closure in a tomb Overexposed and so confused That's Overexposed by Jelani Are. And now we have a concert you're excited about, Julia, and a brand new single from San Diego musician Juliana Zachariu. Tell us about Becky. Zachariu is also putting on the finishing touches to a new album, and she's getting ready to headline at Soda Bar on July 24th. And she's a somewhat recent transplant from Nashville, and I feel like we're pretty lucky that we caught her here. Her music's dreamy, and it's inventive pop. It's really earnest and grounded, as well as being kind of whimsical. And I find that this latest track, Becky is just a really great love letter. It's a total homage to the kind of love and romance that's really steadfast, like how magical some of the really mundane stuff could be. Like buying a carpet for your house is one of the lines in there. Indie fans should definitely have Juliana Zaccario on their radars. Becky is a new single from Juliana Zachariu. She'll perform at Soda Bar on July 24th. Next is an older track, Night and Day, Sometimes Nonsense Helps by Irene, who will perform this weekend at High Tea, a fundraising gala from arts organization The Hill Street Country Club. Tell us about this track. This one is from 2018 by local singer-songwriter Irene, otherwise known as Irene West. And I love the sentiment here in this track that sometimes nonsense helps you get through some pretty bleak times. Her vocals are delicate, but also really strong at the same time. It's a great balance. And she has a really impressive range and just really creative songwriting and production. And yeah, she will be part of the lineup for High Tea in Oceanside. That's on Sunday the 11th. The Sacred Souls will also be performing at that show, as well as a bunch more acts. 
Would it be bright? The shining in your eyes. Would it be bright? Cause there's no That's Night and Day, Sometimes Nonsense Helps by Irene. SD State of Mind Volume 1 is a new compilation of local hip-hop acts. Tell us about this and, Julia, which track you picked. Yeah, it's an anthology with 16 new tracks from some of San Diego's best hip-hop artists. The entire album is great start to finish. There's a ton of variety. And they're also having an album release show on July 14th at the Casbah including some open mic time before and after the main show. And it was really hard to pick a standout track, so I just kind of went for the one with the most contributors. It's like an all-star batting lineup. This one is For the Culture. It's a remix of a track from a few years ago with Kali and Ralph Quasar, also featuring Rick Scales, Callie the Dreamer, Real J. Wallace, Mickey Vale, Apollo, and Beto Perez. Each artist here really brings their own style to their clip, but it never feels disjointed. There's this hypnotic refrain and some melodic flourishes. They really unify the whole song. And I'm partial to rapper Mickey Vale's kind of wry comparison to kombucha. I love the original version of the song that was from last fall, but this remix feels just as essential. Future, Nia, Umoja. I'm like kombucha. I grew up with the culture. Used to living with your mama, so you do it for exposure. All these pay to play promoters got me losing my composure. Uh, SD state of mind, fresh state fam. Always showing love when I pull up to the jam. They treat me like a star, so I shine like a prism. Got bars and bars upon bars. That's For the Culture Remix from SD State of Mind Anthology. The album release show will take place Wednesday, July 14th at the Casbah. And now for a female-fronted emo rock band. Tell us about Rain on Fridays. These are two young women out of Solana Beach, and they just released a new track a few weeks ago called No Feet Mailman. It's a little bit absurd and a little bit fun, but it's also kind of sad. But I really love their kind of irreverent girl rock that always works. Rain on Fridays, we're doing a ton of shows right when the pandemic hit, and they recently recorded a fresh squeezed live session. And you can watch that on YouTube for now to hold you over until they start performing again. No Feet Mailman by Rain on Fridays. You can find links to listen to each of these tracks, plus a Spotify playlist at kpbs.org. And I've been speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans. And Julia, as always, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.